Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Malachi chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, and Malachi chapter 3, kind of the beginning, the first book in the Old Testament and the last book in the Old Testament. We've been in this series called Finding Freedom, and uh, of course we've been teaching through a series that Pastor Robert Morris did uh, about freedom, and uh, it's talking about how as Christians, or as Christ followers, that it's very possible that the very people that Jesus shed his blood and completely redeemed to set them free from the power of sin and the curse of the law, it's very possible that those same Christians will live their lives here on earth having opened the door to the enemy, and the enemy comes in and influences and uh, and, and dictates and sometimes intimidates them into living far below that life to the full that Jesus promised. And when Jesus promised that, you know, the, that the enemy came to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, that wasn't just flowery speech. He wasn't just doing kind of a casual comparative. He actually meant that, that we can live life to our fullest potential, but we have to understand some things about what the enemy wants to do and how sometimes we give him access and permission. So we've been studying all through this thing. I don't remember that we've ever had a series that we've had more testimonies about, more conversation in our connect groups, uh, more challenges, because Mark chapter 4 tells us the moment we take a step into God's plan, the enemy comes immediately to try to challenge us and discourage us. And so, but boy, you talk about spiritual activity and then also a lot of testimonies of people recognizing and getting free. And so we're, we're so grateful to that. Well, this morning we're going to keep going on that. And I want us to start, even though I actually go to Genesis 3 and Malachi 3, I want us to start in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at one verse, verse number 16. And it gives us the three primary approaches, the three primary avenues or pathways that the enemy uses. And here's what it says in the New King James Version Bible. It says, for all that is in the world. Now, it's not talking about the round ball of dust that's floating in the universe. It's talking about the world system, the way the world operates, the patterns and the, uh, the, the principles that, that the world system outside of God's kingdom, how they operate. It says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, the world has a system that they operate, but it's not the system that God operates in. And their system operates by three primary motivations or three primary pathways, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about pride. And, uh, and I said from the beginning that well, since we, right, right when we opened the Bible, the thing about talking about pride to Christians is most of the time, as soon as you say we're going to talk about pride, you know, we kind of tend to want to settle back in our seats saying, man, thank the Lord because I'm pretty proud that I'm not proud. Because we wouldn't really consider that because the first thing that comes to our mind is arrogance and egotism and, and being braggadocious. And, but, but that's only one extreme spectrum of pride. The one we really dealt with was more of a stubborn self-preservation that is committed to relying on our own strength, our own abilities 
to relying on our own righteousness. In other words, we measure ourselves by the good versus the bad in our own eyes. Well, I'm a good person because, or uh, we rely on our own wisdom. I know what the Bible says, but you just got to understand right now where I'm at. But as soon as I can get through this, then I'm going to do what? And we have all these, all these rationales, and really all of that is pride. And when you begin to see that pride is any time that you say with your actions or with your words, or even with your intentions, you say, I'm smarter than God. That's pride. And when you begin to see it like that, you can start seeing pride, you know, speckled all through different areas of your life. And we get to submit that to the Holy Spirit and get that out. Well, Pastor Brandon last week picked it up from there. And he talked about the fear of man, what it means to put yourself in a place or allow something to develop in you that the pressure of the culture around you or the opinion of what people might think at any point or in any circumstance becomes more important to you than what God thinks. And every single one of us wrestle with that from time to time. Some of us have, have given into it and we didn't even realize it until we start seeing this. Well, that was all the pride of life and that's, that's kind of normal pathways. That's normal for the way that the world outside of God's kingdom operates. But Jesus came to set us free from that. Today we're going to pick up on another one of those. We're going to talk about the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And we're going to see three ways that that begins to show up. Or three ways the enemy creeps into our life and kind of takes root in in this particular area, the lust of the eyes. And and I'm going to tell you right up front, because I love you so much, this is going to get really personal for some of you. For some of you, this is going to get really uncomfortable. You're not going to like this one. Some of you are going to be greatly encouraged by what you hear, but some of you are going to be very agitated because we're going to talk about tithing. Now, listen to me. I want to be be upfront about this too. I'm not talking about tithing because the church is in trouble. Not talking about tithing because we're trying to get something from you. Listen, the church is fine. And even if we were in trouble budgetarily, we would go to God as our resource. I wouldn't put pressure on you about it. I'm saying this because I love you and because this is part of the grip that the enemy has on us when we can't trust God with our stuff. In fact, Jesus talked about this like one out of every third message. Jesus talked about time, talent, and treasure, what we trust God with. And in Matthew chapter 7, he, he makes an amazing statement, and he tells us that, that our heart and our treasure is forever connected together. And when you begin to understand that principle, you find that every time God talks about finances in the Bible, it's never about the finances. It's always about your heart. Because God uses finances to recalibrate our heart to make sure we continue to trust in Him. And we put our faith in Him and we look to Him for our resource. And as we do that, then this God who owns it all knows that He's free to to bless you and to resource you. But the more you think it's your stuff and the tighter you hold to that stuff, then the more God has to help you to recalibrate your heart because He really wants to bless you. So we're going to talk about tithing today, and again, it's going to show up in three different ways uh, as in the lust of the eyes. So let me just give you the first one, and we'll just get right to it, and I'm going to bless you right away. The first thing is greed. It's greed. Yeah, that's a real inspiring word. You came to hear an inspiring word this morning. There it is. You're welcome for that, okay? But we're in Genesis chapter 3. Now listen to this. This is really important because it's a look at Genesis that some of us have never seen before. 
But this is what happened and why Eve and then subsequently Adam, why they fell into sin was it really had to do with greed. And we're going to find out why. So I'm in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. It says, now the serpent, and that's not just a snake on the ground. This actually is Satan. The serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now, this is important. You see the first thing that comes out of his mouth. And the first thing that he did was to question the truth of God's word. He does the same thing with you and I. We read something in the Bible, we hear it in a message, and the first thing you'll, you'll hear after that is this little whisper, yeah, but is that really what, is that, is that, does God really mean that? And the first thing he has to do is to question God's word. Now hold on, because that's just the first part of this two-step strategy that he uses to pull you and I away from what God's telling us to do. Notice what Eve said, verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Listen to Satan's reply. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So let me bring you back to his strategy again. The first thing he does, he questions the truth of God's word. Is that really what, what it means? Does that really apply to you? I mean, because you know, your circumstances rather unique and that's just a broad general statement. And once you begin to entertain that, the next thing he does, he just directly contradicts. That's, that's not going to happen to you. Listen, you're not going to get in that deep. Yeah, you're, this, that'll never be you. I know the Bible says if you do that, then this is the consequence of it, but that's not going to happen to you because you know your heart's right. God knows you, and, and this is different here. This is what he does to Eve. The first thing he has to do is question. Then the next thing he does, he comes straight out and contradict. Now, let's just back away for a minute, and let's look at something very broad. It's amazing when you think about how many truths are crystal clear and, and consistent all the way through Scripture, Old Testament and New, and yet we still have, right here in today's day and age, 2,000 years we've had to think about it and study it and really understand it, but here we are 2,000 years later, and we've got a lot of Christian leaders and, and just you know, long-time Christians that are still questioning the validity of God's Word. Is that really what it means? I mean, I know it says that. It's said that for you know, thousands of years now, but is that really what it means? Is that really relevant for today? It was back then, but is it really relevant for today? And not only that, they go a step further, and they begin to tell people, well, I, I don't think that's really what it means anymore. And plus, this is a loving, gracious God. He's not going to give the consequence that the Bible says he's going to. Yeah, that's, that doesn't apply to us anymore. This is happening like right now today. I mean, just look in our culture. We, we can attach it to morality. We can attach it to our sexuality. We can attach it to the genders and, and what the Bible says about that. We can attach it to uh, the, this, uh, this racial equality and social justice, which all the way, uh, there, there are great and important elements for us as Christians to address. But all of them are being pulled away from the biblical truth. How about our response to authority and, and how, how do we navigate that and how do we line up with the kingdom of God to take our rightful place as the body of Christ? And again, this is where we're headed in a moment here. The huge deception among even the church has to do with our money. 
has to do with our stuff. People are uncomfortable. Why do we have to talk about that in church? As if talking about something Jesus talked about, every third message is bad. But this is where the enemy comes in and he questions first. Ah, is that really relevant? Do we really need to talk about that? It's not about money. It's just about loving God. No, it's about calibrating our heart to God so that God can bless and use us to be the blessing that he planned us to be. That's a good time for me to pull back in John chapter 8, and we've been pulling some verses with us, and here's what Jesus said. I'm going to summarize. He said, if you will stay with the truth, if you will abide in the truth, then something's going to happen on the inside, and you're going to have a confidence. You're going to know exactly what God said. You're going to know exactly what God means. You're going to see that's exactly how it works because God's the one that designed it. But here's something else you should recognize. Because that truth is so powerful, and the Bible says if you stay with it, and if you really begin to, to let it absorb in, into how you think and how you begin to function, the power in that truth will literally set your life free, and you'll begin to think clear, and you'll see things that other people just can't see. But you have to realize that because on the other side, the enemy knows that. And listen to me, before the devil can defeat you, he's got to disarm you. Before he can infiltrate your life, he's got to begin to get that truth dislodged and to pull it out here to start questioning and and to start rationalizing. Because once he does that, your defenses are down. But if he can get you disarmed, then he can defeat you. And he does that by, again, questioning and then contradicting the word of God. All right, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to back up to verse 4 again. It says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die for or because... God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Remember, we're talking about the lust of the eyes. Talking about the lust of the eyes here. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what he's saying. The reason God doesn't want you to do that is because God knows that as soon as you do that, then you're going to be like him and you won't need him anymore. And so what he's saying is God's, God's holding out on you. You don't really need to depend on that. You don't need to depend on God. You have the ability to do this. You can do this. But here's what's really important to understand. It was such a deception because he said, number one, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. They were already like God. They were created in the image of God. And you'll know good and evil. They already know good and evil. God already told them, this is good, this is bad. Do this, but don't do that. They they had everything they needed to know. They had everything in their wiring, in their creation to be blessed and to be everything God wanted them to be. But again, the enemy twists it around and he's trying to get them to believe God's holding out on them. Verse number six. So, the wom- so when the woman saw, now remember, we're talking about the lust of the eyes. And when he questioned the truth of God's word and she said, well, yeah, you know, I guess that makes sense. Maybe that's not what it meant. And then she, he contradicted, you're not going to die. In fact, you're actually going to be better. This is actually going to make your life way, way better if you'll do this. When he contradicted, when she bought into that and began to entertain it, I want you to notice something began to change in her perspective. She began to look at this this differently than she looked at it with just with, with God's truth. It says, when she saw, number one, that the tree was good for food, 
that it was pleasing to the eye and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Now let me show you the hinge here, okay? The first thing she did, she took another look at it and she said, you know what? Now that I look at it, that's a beautiful tree. That fruit looks delicious. Listen, it had always been a beautiful tree. The fruit always looked delicious. God never said that the fruit was bad. He just said, you don't get to eat of that one. See all the other trees in the garden? See how beautiful they are? See how delicious that fruit looks? You can eat of all of them as much as you want. You don't get to eat this one. But she started looking at it and said, you know, now that I look at it, it, man, it just looks so beautiful and looks so delicious. And notice this, and it says that it was pleasant to the eyes. Now, this one's really important. Because this word pleasant actually means to awaken a desire. In fact, one translation says it was desirable to the eyes. Let me give you something that you'll be able to latch on to. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that whoever looks on a woman to lust has committed adultery in his heart already. He didn't say you can't look and say, wow, she's, I mean, she's, she's beautiful. You can't look and allow a desire, an inappropriate desire to awaken in your heart. And even though you may not still be looking in the moment, you're still looking on the inside and you're developing a little film script. He said, you don't get to do that because you've already played it out. It's already growing on the inside of you. This is exactly what it means. So when it says that she looked and she said, wow, that really is beautiful. And it looks like it would be delicious. It awakened an inappropriate desire in her heart. And she began to feed that desire, and look what the desire told her next, and it would be desirable to make one wise. That is exactly the opposite of what God said. God says, if you eat this, you're going to die. In other words, that's a foolish move. That would be the dumbest thing you can ever do, is to step and violate something that God said not to do. But because she allowed this inappropriate desire, she's seeing it totally different. The lust of the eyes the, the passion, the desire, the craving for something she sees and what she can imagine it can be, that's taking her over and she's, she's completely not seeing what God said. And again, she went ahead and took and she ate. Now, one, once she was deceived, all of a sudden she does, she's not seeing things straight again and she's seeing things that God said are off limits. Now what she's saying is that there's all these beautiful trees in the garden and I can eat as much as I want of any single one of them. I mean, they all belong to, to Adam and I. They were given to us to Stuart, right? But that one tree we can't have. But she began so fixated on that tree that something in her heart says, you know what? I mean, life is good. I mean, it's, it's okay. But if I had that tree, that's the one thing that will make my life complete. Man, life would be great. Listen to me. That's greed. That's greed. Happiness is always one thing away. Happiness is always well, just the next thing. See, that's greed that that picks up in our heart, and that's exactly what began to happen to Adam. Now, you might be thinking, well, hold on, Pastor Gil, you know, why would God do that in the first place? I mean, why would he put all these beautiful trees and just plop one tree down there and say, hey, this one's beautiful too, and it's really delicious, but you don't get to ever eat of that tree. Why would he do that? And we find out in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he does that because he's wanting to test our heart. He's wanting to give us an opportunity to keep our heart calibrated so we can understand amidst all of the wonderful blessings of the Lord that we keep God first and we keep his truth first. It's never about the the gift. It's always about the giver. And so he puts that so he can calibrate our heart so he can bless it. Now, let me just hold that principle there for a moment. We'll come back and weave it together. But I told you we were going to talk about the tithe. 
And the tithe in the Bible, the, the word tithe actually means tenth. It actually means tenth. And it's talking about not just 10% of all of the income that comes into our house. But listen, this is really important. It's talking about the first 10%. So it's not, let me figure out my budget and see what's going on. And okay, good. I have about, you know, 20% left. I can give God 10 of that. No, that's not tithe. The tithe is before you even decide what you're going to do with the other 90%. Right away, right off the top, the very first 10%, God says, that's holy. You don't get to touch that. You don't get to eat that. In fact, I'm giving you a test and you get to hand that right back to me to prove to yourself and to calibrate your heart in case anything was starting to wrap its fingers around there and become greedy, it'll just loosen the grip and say, wait a minute, all this belongs to the Lord. And so it's a test. In fact, you can see the 10th all the way through the Bible seems to be a number of testing. So uh, I'm going to pretend that you're Bible scholars right now, and uh, the answer is yes. Okay, the answer is 10. But let me just give you a a few examples. There's there's a lot more, but let me give you a few examples throughout the Bible where the number 10 represents a test. And I'm going to put it in a question, and I really want you to engage and to to respond um, and give me the answer, okay? So how many plagues did God test Pharaoh with? And that was pretty weak. Okay, I'm giving you the answer, so come on, you're you ought to be able to score 100 on this test. So let me ask question number one again. How many plagues did God test Pharaoh with? There you go. How many commandments did God give? How many times did Israel, was Israel tested in the wilderness? Yeah, a little softer on that. He's like, I don't know. I haven't figured that out. Trust me, okay? All of these are going to be 10, so just stay with me, all right? All right. How many times did, was Jacob's wages changed? How many days was Daniel tested? How many virgins are tested in Matthew chapter 25? How many days of testings do we see in the book of Revelation? How many disciples did Jesus have? Ah, I just want to see if you're paying attention. All right, good, good. We're studiers here. So listen to me. Here's what you need to know. Again, throughout the Bible, 10th is always a test. It's always a test. So let me just make it really practical. Every time that you get paid, you get a test. And God says, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to give me 10%. I'm asking you to give me the first 10%. Take it right off the top and move that right back over to me. He says, once you do that, then he said, then I will bless you with the other 90% because I know that I can trust you and I know that your heart uh, will return the thanks and will return all all of the, the, the faith to me and I can meet your needs. Listen to me, Debbie and I have been doing this. I've been doing this, I think, my whole life. My parents did it and just pass it on to me. And Debbie's, Debbie's parents did it too, and we've been doing it our whole life. In fact, still, every time I get paid, I, I, I'm one of those guys, I, I just like the paper stuff, and so, you know, some people do it electronically, and that's great, but I pull out the checkbook. It's probably one of the only things I ever write a check for anymore, but I like to write it out. I like to spend a moment or two with the Lord thanking him and letting him know, listen, if there's anything sticky in my heart, then let's, let's just clean that right now. And I like to literally bring it to the Lord. We don't get to pass the offering right now during, during COVID, but I bring it into the office and I put it where, you know, where we have our little lockbox and it's just a sweet time between me and the Lord. Listen, we tithe as a church. Everything that comes into us, we tithe that back to this, this denomination, this affiliation we're involved in. And listen, we've done that in the lean times. We've done that in the generous times. But we do it because it's a test. This is not about money. 
This is about our faith and our trust in God. Let me give you a couple more examples. Exodus chapter 13, uh, verse 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all of the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. Exodus 23, verse 19 says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And we're going to come back to that, bring it into the house of the Lord your God. Listen to Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30 says, And all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. So the first door that Adam and Eve opened is they took something for themselves that actually belonged to God. And they didn't need to. They, They were in paradise. They had more than enough of everything. They had no debt. They had no stress. They had no pressure. But greed doesn't care. All greed knows is happiness is one more thing away. And this is how the enemy plays on this. But I want you to see also, greed is not just kind of, you know, in in your decision, your person. Greed has a lasting consequence. And the Bible says that it passed to the next generation and the cost was greater than they were willing to pay. Genesis chapter 4 now, it says, in the process of time, in other words, as time continued to to progress on, it came to pass that Cain, that was their oldest son, brought an offering, not the first fruit. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought, Abel was his younger brother, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And listen, Cain was very angry. And then once he was angry because he noticed God blessing his younger brother, but God wasn't blessing him. And the first thing is, that's not fair. Why is he doing that? I'm super angry. But then he got depressed. Then he got discouraged because he realized the blessing of the Lord was on his brother, but not on him. But notice how God responded. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Remember, we're talking about open doors here. Sin lies at the door. I I wish we had time to get into that phrase. It's such an incredible phrase uh, in the original language. It literally gives a picture of a predator that's crouched in the corner at the doorway waiting for you to kind of walk through unsuspected so he can pounce on you and just devour you. And so it's a very passionate word. It says sin lies at the door. And notice this, and it's desire, it's passionate, it's salivating, it's craving, it's hoping that you won't do what you're supposed to do and you'll instead step through that doorway without making it right with God because then he's got you. It says his desire is for you, but notice what God said, but you should rule over it. Well, if we had time to continue reading the story, uh, most of you probably know Cain did not repent. Instead, he, can, he continued to stew in his anger, and then it turned into jealousy, and that jealousy, he ended up killing his brother. And I read that as a pastor, and I think, how many people have I counseled that because of greed destroyed a whole family? Grandma and grandpa will pass away, and all the relatives come together to mourn, and everything's great until it's time to divide up the stuff. And then some people never speak again because they're angry about stuff. They're angry about, you know, dollars and cents, and, and it, it's just greed. 
I see divorces that you know end and it's time to mediate and, and man, they're just haggling over every little tiny thing and, and it ends up, they, you know, they're destroyed in their own personhood and the kids are the ones that get the short change. But hey, you know what? But we won the negotiation. It's crazy. But it's what the enemy uses for greed. Greed, number one, lust of the eyes. You, you, you look at something and you think, I gotta have that because that's what's gonna make me happy. No, it's not. It's not. So number one is greed. Here's number two. It's unbelief. Unbelief. And uh, it, again, it, it's amazing when, when you start walking through some of these basic principles. And again, I listed a whole bunch of them, but we're talking about money or we're talking about tithing. It's amazing that Christians can read in the Bible. It's so clear. And it's all over. It's not just a one obscure little tiny. It's everywhere. And it's so clear. But they'll still say, yeah, but I just don't believe that's for today. And you think, how is that possible? Well, let me tell you what I've learned, you know, just in pastoring. It's not that these people are, are write-offs. It's not that they, that they don't genuinely love Jesus and they're not genuinely Christians and, and you know, and, and want to do the right thing. Somewhere along the line, they've been misinformed. Somewhere along the line, they've, they've made a mistake. They, they stepped into something and now they're, they're reluctant to or they don't know how to back out. Somewhere along the line, they've compromised something, and it's really difficult now to back up. In fact, here's a couple of them. Some people say, well, tithing's not in the New Testament, so it can't be a New Testament thing. And I want to say, have you read your Bible? Because tithing's in the New Testament like eight times. It, it just shows up right there. And uh, okay, um, somebody say, yeah, yeah, it's, but it's only eight times. And those times are talking, you know, really pointing back to Old Testament principles and, and Old Testament covenants, you know, in that times. Okay, well, let's, let's just go with your theory. If that's the case, then stealing's only in the New Testament 11 times, and three of those are repeats, so that's really eight times. And all of those are, are leaning back to what the, the original commandments and the laws were. And so does that mean it's okay for us to steal? Is that legalism? Well, you, but Pastor, you can't preach that we, we shouldn't steal because that's legalistic, because that, that's in the Old Testament law. How about adultery? That's only in, in the New Testament 20 times, and five of those are repeats, so we're only talking about 15 times. So is it okay that we commit adultery? Or if we say we shouldn't commit adultery, is that legalism? But see, the, the deception just wraps itself around us, and we, we form these rationales that are not sound biblical judgment, and they don't hold across the board. They're like pick, you know, onesie twosies. Well, I like it for this one, but no, it doesn't apply to that one, but it totally applies to this one over here, and that's just not what the Bible says. We can't do that. I heard somebody say one time, yeah, but, you know, but stealing, adultery, those things, those are commandments. Tithing's not a commandment. Hold on for a second. Because the first two commandments say, no other gods before me, and no idols before me. And Jesus preached and he said, listen, you're going to come to a point in your faith where you're going to have to choose, do you serve God or mammon? Which one? And I, I mean, I could make a really strong case. God's not legalistically commanding, but God's not shy about this either. God said, listen, I own it all. And this is not about money. This is about calibrating your heart and keeping, it, keeping your faith and your trust in me because if you'll do that, I got plenty of money. I can bless you. I can resource you. I can help you. I can increase you. But if you start out and you're already holding on tight to stuff, we've got to deal with that first. Let me give you a, a New Testament passage in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is talking 
uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees, and you know how wonderfully nice he was to them all the time. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he's going to tell them why. He said, because you pay tithe of mint and anise and of cumin and uh, or but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faith. But notice what Jesus said next. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Jesus was not pointing back and saying, all of this is bad. Hey, listen, mercy and justice and, and, and faith, those are in the Old Testament too. He's pulling the whole list forward and he's saying, listen, you're doing okay on these things. You, you got to keep doing those, but you're leaving out these weightier things. These are the things that undergird all the other stuff. And he said, and that, that's not right. You can't do that. Let me give you a couple of other examples because I just want you to see it's all through scripture. Joshua chapter six, verse 19 said, but all the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are, are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. That's the second time we've seen that. We'll come back to it again. Now, let me give you some context. This is talking about, they've just crossed over the, the river Jordan and the first city they came to in the promised land is Jericho. And here's what God says, I'm going to deliver Jericho into your hands, but everything that has to do with stuff you don't get to keep any of that. I want you to bring all of that and put it in the treasury of the temple. He said, I want you to, of the tabernacle rather, I want you to put it in that treasury. And the reason God said that is God says, this is the first city. And I want you to dedicate the first one to me first. And if you'll dedicate this one to me first, I'll bless you and all the rest. But one chapter later, we find out they didn't do that. And so here's what it says. This is God speaking. He says, Israel has sinned and they've also transgressed my covenant, which I command them for or because they have even taken some of the accursed things. Now, let me just stop. The reason they're accursed things is because they turned them into a curse. They did the wrong thing with them. They weren't a curse from the very beginning. They were things that, that were supposed to come into the temple. But they decided, ah, that one, that, one, that one was sweet, man. No one's going to miss that. And a guy named Achan just took a few things and buried them in his own tent because he didn't want to give that to the Lord. And so the Bible says, you've taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put some of it among their own stuff. Now watch how they open the door. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless or until you destroy the accursed from among you. Now I'm going to get to the main chapter, uh, the main passage in Malachi. It's the second one I ask you to turn to. And a lot of people, when you start talking about tithing that have been around the church for a while, they expect you to go right to Malachi. And we could have done that. Don't get me wrong. It's the most explicit uh, passage that talks about the intricacies of tithing and how personal it is to the Lord. But I really want you to see this is spread out all over the Bible. This is not just in one passage and, you know, pastors tend to hone in on it because we're trying to get money. We're not, at least I'm not. So listen to Malachi chapter three, we're in verse number six. He says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says the same thing. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I love the fact that Christians want to quote that when they really need a rock to depend on. But in other cases, they don't want to quote that. 
They want to think God has some flex. You know, a, there's a contextual thing. There's a, you know, there, there's a, well, it, this is not relevant for today thing. But, but those other things are definitely relevant because I need those and I want those. But God says, no, across the board, I'm the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your father, you have gone away from my ordinances. Now, let me just stop. One of the misconceptions about tithing, again, is that it was part of the Old Testament law, but consistently the Bible calls it or refers to it as an ordinance. And an ordinance is defined as an ordinary principle. It's like everybody knows this. That's just, that's just how God said to live. Everybody knows that. And this is an ordinary principle in the Bible. It's what's normal for God's, for God's children. We've already looked at, starting in Genesis chapter 3 all, and, and chapter 4, all the way through the Bible, you could trace it. Tithing was normal. Tithing was, all, was mentioned, and it was normal to them. 2,500 years before the law ever showed up, tithing was normal. Jesus talked about it in the New Testament as if it was normal. Yeah, well, everybody, everybody knows that. You're supposed to do that. Here's what you're not doing right. That's what he said to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he, he calls it here an ordinance. This is God saying it was an ordinance. He said, but you, had, you have not kept them. And listen to what God says. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But listen to their response. But you said, in what way shall we return? Now, hold on. This was an ordinary principle. Everybody knows this, Right? Everybody knows it, but they've been so deceived that now all of a sudden what was ordinary, what's been done for 2,500 years, now all of a sudden they're looking at it from a whole different perspective. Ah, but I don't know, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure that's really for today. Is that really necessary anymore? And this is ordinary. And God's kind of scratching his head saying, this is an ordinary principle and you just walked away from it. And I'm telling you, return to me. And they're like, what do you mean return? Return to what? To ordinary principle. And so he goes on and, and they say, but in what way shall we return? And God confronts him. He says, will a man rob God? Now I want you to notice the word rob. It's very intentional usage here. And he's going to use it four times in, a, in just a couple of statements here. Watch this. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Again, they're, they're clueless, right? 2,500 years, this has been their covenant. But they're clueless. In what way have we robbed you? In tithe and offering, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And then he tells them how to reverse it. Bring all the tithe into the storehouse. Now, a couple of, couple of quick insights that's really important here. The first thing he says is to bring the tithe, not give. And the reason he's saying to bring it, because we're about to see the tithe belongs to the Lord. We've already seen it. The, the first 10% of any increase, it's consecrated to the Lord. And God's not shy. He said, that belongs to me. And he gives you all of it because you get to pass the test of taking the first 10% and bringing back to God what already belongs to him. Let me give you an example. If, uh, if you needed a truck, you're going to haul some furniture, and I, I drive a little Toyota Tacoma, and if you say, Pastor, can I borrow your truck? Yeah, sure, here you, know, here you go. And so you take it, and you, you grab the stuff you know, that you need, and you bring it to your house, and then you come back to me, and you take the keys out of your pocket, and you say, no, Pastor Gil, my wife and I were just praying, and we're just going to give you this truck. <laughs> oh, that truck belongs to me. You can't give me something that already belongs to me. You can bring it back to me. 
And you can tell me how much you appreciated, you know, being able to, to borrow that, but you can't give me what belongs to me. And so it's important that we understand when, when we're tithing, we're not giving. Some people say, well, I, you know, I give 10%. Well, you might give 10%, but that's not your tithe. You're bringing something that already belongs to the Lord back to him as a way of honoring him and as a way of saying, I get it. None of this belongs to me. It all belongs to you. And I'm coming back and honoring you with this and putting my trust in my faith that you'll bless the rest of the 90%. Notice this also. He says, bring all the tithe. Why would he say that? Because in the original language, tithe meant the tenth. Why would he say bring all the tenth? He, he could have just said bring, you know, bring the tenth. But he says that because there's a temptation in us to kind of fudge those numbers. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tithe, you know, 2% to here and 5% to there and 1% to here. And, and God says, <laughs> listen, this belongs to me. And I want you to return what belongs to me in the portion that it belongs to me and to the place that I tell you that it goes. This wasn't my decision. This was God's decision. And God says, bring all of that tithe and bring it straight into the storehouse. The storehouse is the the pantry of where you receive your spiritual nourishment. And notice he says, do that so there'll be food in my house. It's not just the physical stuff. It's the spiritual stuff. It's the covenant, the sense of agreement, the sense that nobody's grasping and grabbing here. We're all trusting the Lord to do what he promised he would do. And there's a spiritual dynamic that's released. And this is what he's telling them to do as individuals and also as a nation. But notice this. He says, bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And listen, he says, and try me. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. And he says, put me to the test. I'm giving you a test. You got paid. You get to take the top 10% and bring it back as a way of honoring me and letting me know that you're not, you're not, greed's not grabbing you and you're putting your trust in me. But listen to me, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll let you test me too. He says, do it and you see if I don't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And, and, and on top of that, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the fields, says the Lord of hosts. And before this thing's over, all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Listen to me, here's what I want you to know. It's personal with God. This is, this is very personal with him. Very, very personal. But I want you to know, when you do what's personal for him, God turns around and he makes it personal with you. Now, I told you to remember that he used the word rob. Here, here's why it's important. The word robbed or robbery and the word theft are two different words, even in our own legal system today. Theft means you take something that doesn't belong to you. Robbery means you take something from somebody else. Maybe at gunpoint, maybe by some fear or force method, but you're taking something right directly from a person. Here's what God's saying when he uses that word. He says, how is it that you come into my house and you worship and say that I'm your God and you put your trust in me and you ask me to do things in your life and I do and you receive those blessings and then you take what rightfully belongs to me and you walk right back out the door. He said, you're stealing from me. You're not just taking it. You're not just stealing it. You're robbing me. This is personal. 
And God says, you need to understand, I, I want to be personal with you too. But you've got to recognize how you've opened the door to the enemy here. And this is really personal. But listen to me, if you'll repent and you'll come back and do the right thing, then I'll be personal with you too. And notice he, he made it personal. He said, I'll open up the windows of heaven for you. I'll bless you and your situation. I'll make sure that whatever you've already built, that while you're trying to, you know, to get the, to the next level, the enemy doesn't unravel or steal what you've already done. I'll rebuke the devourer for you. If you're personal with me, I will make it personal with you. And this is really important that we understand this. Now, let me just say this real quick. I'm not saying that if you'll give that first 10, or I'm sorry, if you'll bring that first 10%, I'm not saying that everything in finances just magically starts working. That money just starts showing up everywhere and, and all automatically your debts are canceled. I'm not saying any of that. Here's what I am saying. There are, other, there are other principles. There's stewardship and there's faith and there's obedience and there's patience and there's all these other things. But what I am saying is God makes it personal. If you will return to him what rightfully belongs to him, he says, then I'll be in a contractual, a covenant agreement with you. And no matter what's going on in your life, I will, I'll step in, whether by mercy because you made some wrong decisions and really, you know, you probably should get on the tubes, but I won't let you. I won't let you. Because you're, you're returning to me. I'll help you. I'll teach you some things. He says, and then I'll continue to bless and increase you. This is personal with God. So the first thing, uh, blessed of the eyes, involves greed. The second re thing revolves unbelief that people just don't believe that God will really do what he said. They don't believe that God will do what he said in terms of uh, the enemy getting in and devouring their, their, their wherewithal. And they don't believe that he's that personal and that loving that he'll do what he said to rescue. Here's the last one, and this one won't take us but a few minutes. Uh, number three is fear, and specifically the fear of the future. Specifically the fear of the future. And uh, again, remember that in Genesis chapter three, Satan convinced Eve that God was holding out on her. That if she would eat that tree, that she would know something she didn't know before, and she would become something that she wasn't before, that God was holding out on her. Well, it's the same thing today People are, uh, uh, get caught up in this, in this fear of the future that God will hold out on them. Yeah, but what if I do that and God doesn't come through? Well, he promised he would over and over and over again. He says, if you will do what you're supposed to do, then test me, put me to the test. I'll pass the test every single time and I'll do what I'm supposed to do. Now, uh, we, when we look at this, we can see this in the life of one of the disciples and it brings something crystal clear to us. And this is where we'll end it today. In Luke chapter 22, uh, this is a story about Jesus and his disciples. And listen to what it says, beginning in verse one. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Jesus. For they feared the people. That's what Pastor Brandon preached about last week, right? They, they, weren't even, they weren't even trying to understand whether he was actually the Messiah or not. Some of them actually knew he was. But they were so afraid of what it was going to cost them and what people were going to say that, that they were literally manipulating and steering away because they feared the people. But notice verse 3, then or right about that time, Satan entered into Judas so something was going on inside of Judas as he was walking through this last stretch of the journey with Jesus before Jesus went to the cross. Something was going on. And right about the same times that, that the scribes and the Pharisees just shifted and said, okay, you know what? We're just going to bring a conclusion to this. We're going to kill him. Right about that time, Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. 
Verse 4, so he went his way and he conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and, listen, agreed to give him money. Now hold that thought because that wasn't where it actually started. That's just where Satan came in and he decided to act. But let's, let's rewind a week earlier. We're in a different gospel now and it's the gospel of John. It says, then six days before the Passover, so this was a week earlier, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, who he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the tables with him. Verse three, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, Another passage talks about she could sense that, that something deeply spiritual was happening and she was anointing Jesus like as, as for a burial. And so th- this was a Holy Spirit prompted thing that she did. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the Lord. Uh, verse four, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And uh, this he said, listen, not because he cared for the poor, he didn't care about the poor, but because he was a thief and had the, had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, here's a question that I've asked people when I've talked with them privately and we're walking through the subject of tithing. I've not met anybody that would read that story and say, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Judas was embezzling money out of the tithe box, out of the treasury box of Jesus' ministry. Judas was embezzling that money. How, how, how could you possibly do that? Let me ask you a question. Is it any different in taking money out of the treasury that doesn't belong to you as opposed to taking money that's supposed to go in the treasury and not putting it in the first place? And see, so we don't see it like that, Right? We, we never stop to consider that. But again, when you're reading the context of the Bible, God's really clear. If you walk in and you don't leave what you're supposed to bring back to him, then the Bible says, God says, you're robbing me right to my face. And that's personal. And see, we, we don't think that. We, we read about Judas and we say, oh, that's, a, that, that's shocking. How can he do that? Well, we just need to read and understand that we oftentimes do the same thing. Never, it wasn't our intention wasn't our heart, but once we can open it up and see, wow, that's exactly what he's saying. Let me jump to Matthew 26. All of these are the gospels telling the same story. And Judas said, he's talking to the, the, the chief priests and, and the rulers now, and Judas said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out, stop, they counted out of what? So they had a big, a big box of cash somewhere and they pulled that cash out and they start counting this stuff out. Listen, they're counting it out of the treasury. They're counting it out of the tithe and the offering that came into the temple and they put it in their treasury. Now they're pulling it out of the treasury and they're counting it out to Judas. That's an important part. They counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. You can do a little bit of Bible study and find out that 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Or in this case, gaining 30 pieces of silver was the price of Judas going into bondage. For money. 30 pieces of silver. 
Okay, now we're going to fast forward. This is afterwards. Now Jesus has been betrayed. He's had the trial and, uh, and he's about to go to the cross. Matthew t- chapter 27 says, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was, Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see it to it or that's not our problem. That's your problem. Verse number five, then he, that's Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, listen, it is not lawful to put them into, actually back into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. How many Christians will not tithe? but they find some inspiring thing, some charitable thing that that kind of pricks their passion. And they say, well, you know, I don't really know if that's true, but I'm going to do this instead. They mishandled the tithe money, but they're going to buy a field so that people that can't afford a right burial. So that's a good thing, right? that's That's a charitable thing to do. But I want you to notice how God saw it. It says, therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. God says, nope, that didn't make the difference. That didn't make up the difference. Now, bring it to a close here. Most Christians would read the story of Judas, do read the story of Judas and say, how could he have done that? I would never, ever do that. I would never betray the Lord like that. I I, I would never sell him out. I mean, for 30 pieces of silver, how, how can you do that? How can you do that? But again, some of those same Christians don't stop to look at the story. And here's the shocking truth. Jesus was betrayed with tithe money. Jesus was betrayed with money that was taken that belonged to God out of the treasury and then brought back to God under false pretenses and then not even returned but used for something totally different. Jesus was betrayed by, 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 uh, by tithe money. And although greed... And unbelief and oftentimes uh, fear, the fear of future, makes it really cloudy because we get in the middle of circumstances. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of tangible stuff. It makes it cloudy for us to understand. Listen, there's a lot of Christians that are betraying Jesus for much, much less than 30 pieces of silver. Much, much less. 10%. 10%. 10 cents on the dollar. And they'll betray the Lord. They'll rob straight from him. But the Bible says if you'll return to him, if you'll return to him and return what, right, what rightfully belongs to him, God says, okay, it's now time for you to test me and see if I don't pass the test. I will open the windows of heaven and I will shock you at how I will bless. Not only that, I will hold and sustain everything that, that you're building, that, you're, that, that, that was built in my plan. I will hold all that and sustain it while you're re- recalibrating and moving this around. I know this is a touchy subject, listen to me, and I'm telling you, I'm not trying to get out of, out of it. I, I don't really know who ties and who doesn't in the church, and, and I don't, you know, in that respect, I don't care. I love everybody the same. Our church is going to minister to everybody the same, but because we're trying to understand how the enemy gets in, and we're trying to be free, it's vital that we, we just come full view of what the Bible says in this particular area. And we allow the Holy Spirit to calibrate our hearts. Last thing I'll say, and I'm going to pray. Um, I know this is a tough subject for some of you. Some of it for very practical reasons. You're like, Pastor Gil, I'm looking at our budget. It's like, how how do you do that? I mean, we're we're kind of already past that, right? How do you do that? Listen to me. If if you want to talk about this some more, 
We have pastors that are willing to help you to understand that. We have pastors that are willing to help you to, to navigate and, and say, then how do you begin to realign a budget so you can move your way back to God? Remember, it's not about the money, it's about the heart. And, and we, we wanna be in this with you. I'm not just dropping a bomb on you and walking out. We wanna be in this with you because we're a believing God that he's going to set us completely free so that we can live life to the fullest potential so that we can reach out to a world that is dying because we get to represent Jesus. Bow your head and let me pray for you as we leave. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. I'm so grateful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. And you do it in little bite-sized pieces from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible. You just keep re repeating it and rehearsing it over and over again so you layer it in our heart. Lord, I'm also grateful that you committed yourself and you said, I know this is a big step, but test me, try me and see if I won't do exactly what I promised I would do. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you that anybody here who's wrestled with this area, who the enemy has deceived and lied to them, that you would begin to deal with their heart. No pressure from us, Lord, but Holy Spirit, that you would begin to deal with their heart and you begin to help them to see the truth of the covenant of God concerning tithing and concerning their finances. And then give them wisdom, give them all the support, and then follow through and just amaze them with your goodness and your faithfulness in being their provider. I thank you for all of this. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.